This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Hey, this is Elminster Shadowdale, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm James Intracasso. In this episode, number 252, I've hijacked the rest of the Tome Show crew to talk about Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, the third book in the Companions Codex from R.A. Salvatore, who we'll be talking to later. And we'll dive right into that shortly, but first, Noble Knight is back because they love us and we love them. If you haven't heard of Noble Knight, well... Welcome to the show. You probably haven't been listening very long. <laughs> We're glad you've decided to give us a chance. Second, it's a brick-and-mortar store that also makes online sales. They carry the latest in gaming products, but specialize in finding out-of-print games. And my pick for this episode is the Demon Wars RPG. Demon Wars is a non-D&D novel series written by famed D&D author R.A. Salvatore, who also wrote the book that we're discussing today. Uh, and we'll be talking to later. He also uh, helped or was instrumental in the design and creation of the Demon Wars RPG, which he kickstarted along with, I think it was his son, mm-hmm. uh, yes. who helped as a game design. Uh, what, a, two years ago, I think they kickstarted and published last year. Uh, in it, you get to play a monk who is what sort of monks in this world are one part priest, one part martial artist, and one part magic user. Uh, you can check that out over at Noble Knight for about $35 new right now. Awesome. Noble Knight is an online game store. D&D, they got that and more. And if you think out-of-print games are nice, shop Noble Knight, because they've got the best price. And if you got gaming products to sell, then Noble Knight will buy them as well. So go to the place where gaming's the bomb and head over to noblenight.com. And don't forget to tell them the Tone Show sent you. And now, into the book Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, Book 3 of the Companion Codex. Uh, so, did. Read or listen? What was your experience? Uh, so I actually listened to this, and I listened to all three of the Companions Codex, and I had never listened to an R.A. Salvatore novel before this, uh, but mm. I listened to them all in about a week. So I am totally caught up and ready <laughs> to talk Salvatore, although 
uh, I may bleed one story into another a bit. <laughs> mm. Well, I will try to keep that straight for you because I, well, I also listened. I hadn't listened to, I mean, I've listened to the previous ones as well. I've been listening rather than reading most of my D&D novels for, for a while now. Um, but it's been a long time since I've listened to the previous Companion Codex books. Um, and so part of me had a hard time remembering, what was the last one? Return of the King? No, uh, that, yes, that, Rise of the... Rise of the... <laughs> That makes the sense. <laughs> Return of the King is a whole different series. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you so, might have heard of it. Yeah. So uh, Rise of the King, um, I only have sort of vague recollection of recollections of. I, I actually remember the, the first one, The Companions, um, more vividly. And so part of my, my first experience with Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf was sort of being like, oh, and... Um, yeah, where do we leave off again? <laughs> right? So I will be very good uh, counterweight for you as you can't remember what's in what story and what's not. I will be able to tell you because I don't remember the previous story very well. Yes. And we are, this is completely spoilers be darned, right? Uh, if you have not read this book and don't want it spoiled for you, uh, you should probably not listen to this podcast. Yeah, that's probably fair. Uh, I mean, we're we're not doing this as part of our book club series um, for f- various reasons. Uh, and usually we, we don't shy away from spoilers at all um, mm-hmm. in the book club. In a review, I mean, you, we can't really talk about the book without talking about what's in the book right so there will be spoilers i think like if there's any like big twists or anything maybe we avoid revealing those because it's a review not a not a book club discussion right fair enough so so that's sort of where we're at okay okay all right we got the rules i got the rules all right so james what is the story of vengeance of the iron dwarf so vengeance of the iron dwarf picks up pretty much where uh, Rise of the King left off. And you have Drizzt uh, reunited with the uh, companions from Mithril Hall uh, who come back in the companions as part of this giant uh, Maliki rebirth scheme that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so they're uh, at the beginning of the book, Wolfgar and Regis, who are two of the companions, a uh, human barbarian and a halfling rogue, respectively, are separated because uh, they've they've gotten cut off. And there is a is huge... is he Regis or Spider now? Uh, I think he is. I mean, he, he goes back and forth. <laughs> he does between each. Well, and, uh, and and they all kind of do to some degree, but but especially Regis, right? Yes, yeah, Regis. And, I mean, he's the most changed i would say uh yeah I, you could argue that uh caddy Bree is is also changed but personality wise he he goes from being sort of a meek lazy uh soft halfling to a big heroic adventurer yeah halfling. he he was always sort of the comic relief he was always sort of the he was almost in some cases he was the damsel in distress oh yeah you know in the previous books um and then in this new life uh, I re- and that's one of the things I, I we talked about when the companions came out. and We talked about that. That's one of the things I really liked was um, in this new life, Regis is sort of his own man, right? He's he's right. useful and and um, important on his own, not just as a hanger on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this is actually it's funny. The story uh, is very familiar. And Jeff, I see in your notes we are going <laughs> to cover this. Uh, if you read the the Thousand Orcs, uh, that that trilogy of books about Obuld Many Arrows trying to take over the Silver Marches, uh, at the end of that, uh, he establishes this kingdom of Many Arrows, uh, and now it's all about how 
the drow have incited the drow of Menzo Baranzan have incited the orcs of many arrows to once again try to conquer the rest of the silver marches, which includes Bruinor Battlehammer's home of Mithril Hall, um, which he fought so hard to reclaim a whole lifetime ago, a dwarf lifetime ago. How so. far back does your um, Forgotten Realms history go? Uh, you know, with with these novels, so I have read every uh, Drizzt R.A. Salvatore okay. novel and the and the Claire Quintet, and then I have some Ed Greenwood and stuff. Um, and I have read the setting guide from second edition, but that was a long time ago. No, I just I find it interesting that you you like myself continuously refer to the region as the Silver Marches, um, mm-hmm. but I believe it was in. Fourth edition, and they they're continuing this. They've sort of renamed the region mm. into Lorwar or whatever. Yes, yeah. Um, and in the book, he refers to it as both, right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, I yeah. have to, and I always have to remind myself, oh yeah, those are the same thing, right? Because in my in my head, the instinct is, oh yeah, it's the Silver Marches. Yeah, exactly. So if you're if you're out there listening, it's Lorwar or the Silver Marches, or it seems like R.A. Salvatore can't keep it straight either. Well, um, and I don't know that he can't, but I, I think <laughs> Watsy made that change in fourth edition, <laughs> and and he followed suit. Exactly. So essentially, right, the orcs are at it again. They're trying to take over. This time, they have two white dragons on their side and a bunch of drow. And uh, and Drizzt and friends and giants. They got frost giants. Oh yeah, they got the frost giants. Because uh, you got to have giants in there. And, and I think there were ogres. Yeah, there's ogres and there's uh, trolls and bog folk at one point. Um, so you know all all your classic. Yeah, a bunch of monsters. Oh, yeah. go- goblins were a thing, right? Because we just pretends to be one for a long time. Yeah, bugbears show up. Yeah. Uh, Ogrelons. Uh, you know all your favorites, wargs. But it's a um, but it's a an orc based kingdom right so they're all working for the orcs exactly and that's what there's a lot of right there's thousands and thousands and thousands of orcs and these uh you know the kingdoms of the silver marches sort of all are blaming each other for the rise of these orcs and are refusing to work together so it becomes it's up to drizzed and companions to unite the kingdoms and get them to fight together to save themselves and defeat the orcs. And, uh, you know, there's a, a fair amount of twists and turns, particularly in the drow behind the scenes storyline in this, which is, uh, which is interesting. Um, but you know, I, I think that in the nutshell is the story, right? Mm. Orcs rise up and Drizzt and friends have to conquer them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of the gist of it. And it deals along the way you, like you mentioned, uh, Wolfgar and Regis sort of get separated and then they slowly work their way back. And what about two thirds or so of the way through the book, they, or maybe even later, they sort of reunite with, um, the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you follow the, the drow story a little bit. Jarl Axel sort of makes it, a, makes a showing or at least his, um, his influence. Yes. Makes a showing. Um, for sure. Um, yeah. And so, and, and you also deal a little bit with the whole, what, so what's this new status quo for Bruner going to be, right? (laughs) Because he's the, the two time King of Mithril Hall and now he's back and is there going to be a a contest for the throne and, um, how's that all going to sort of play out and, um, how are you going to deal with the fact that he is at one time the king of this realm, but also a child in the, from this other realm, or, you know, this other dwarf hold or whatever? Um, oh, yeah. And so it deals a little bit with all of that as well. 
Yeah, and you know what's funny is that if you have read these books, um, R.A. Salvatore uh, has written so many books in the realms that it's almost like within this universe there is an R.A. Salvatore universe, mm. you know? And there are – he does this every once in a while with a, with a series. Um, you know, this is like The Avengers, uh, it's everybody coming together from all the, you know, you've got the drow factions and the orc factions and you've got a million dwarves with weird made up on the spot names and, uh, you know, and all of the companions and everything. And then, you know, uh, in some of the earlier books in the series, uh, of the companions codex, you've got Artemis and Treary making an appearance and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think if you're a R.A. Salvatore Realms fan, this is a great book because there are some deep R.A. Salvatore cuts in it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, and on one hand, it's almost like anybody who was ever a companion of Drist <laughs> is here. On the other yeah. hand, there are some notable exceptions, right? Ar- Artemis and Trary does not appear anywhere in this book. Um, it does not. Dahlia is only kind of sort of referenced in this book but does not appear. And she was a big deal through the last several um, series of Drift novels. Yes. Um, So there's there's some notable um, lack. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is some notable like, oh, this person. But the series as a whole has those characters. And uh, and they're still mentioned. They're certainly not out Mm. of the, the universe yet, as it were. Right. So, so is it too much? Are there too many of those characters that you can't really get into and really have a good time with and explore the ones that are there? Or, uh, is, or is it okay to start, sort of say, you know, every now and then it's okay to just throw everybody at the wall and see what sticks? You know, I think, again, because this is the third book in the series and they've been building up to it for a while. And like the 30th book in, uh, from Salvatore on the character, right? So Yeah, exactly. That It's okay to occasionally throw a, a character in who doesn't really need more of an introduction, mm-hmm. um, you know, because we already know what's going on in that character's head and that kind of thing. I do think... If you're if you're jumping in with the companions and then going on the companions codex, you do lose part of it. You lose, um, you know. There's a lot of references to Grand Master Kane, uh, mm. and and you lose something if you haven't read uh, the previous book. Right? Yeah, the books where Jarlaxle and and Artemis and Treary are oh, adventuring the Cell Swords. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, um, or at least read the previous book where Grand Master Kane sort of interacts with uh, Afrofrenfrer. Yes, Which, yeah, it's exactly. amazing how comfortable I've become with that name. Because when he <laughs> when he first introduced that character, I think I even interviewed him. Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> like, are you just trying to drive me crazy? Like, uh, sometimes I think <laughs> that he has so much fun with names that it's almost inappropriate. Like, it's just not good. Like, it takes me out of the story. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. I almost uh, in this book in particular. I feel like I would prefer more character development, and I think he's got the room and page count to do it. Uh, and, you know, mm. he writes battles very, very well, and this is a book about a war, uh, but there are so many yeah. paragraph and paragraph and paragraph about battle after battle after battle after battle. Yeah, uh, I, and it, I, I feel like the only characters that he really had took the time to develop were mm-hmm. what? Bruiner and Afrofrenfrer? 
Yes. Yeah. And they have great moments in this book. They are awesome. Uh, you know, there's a, a showdown after friend fair really has. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, and it's funny. I feel like this happens a lot and especially in these books where, uh, they're fighting a war for Bruinor for some reason. Drizzt kind of ends up being a weapon that gets pointed. Right. Uh, well, a, and, a, and unfortunately I felt like Catabri was the same way. Like I, th- I feel like, Catabri went from being a character like the early days of Catabri. It was I was kind of meh on her as a character anyway. Then right at the end, before you know things went bad for her, um, before the fourth edition version of the realms came in, mm-hmm. um, and she was starting to get into spellcasting uh, and working with Illustrial. Yeah, uh, that's when she just kind of started to get interesting to me. And then in in her rebirth, she took on this role as a leader. Um, and, and like felt a lot more interesting to me. And then I felt like in the last, you know, book and a half or so, she just sort of took a back seat. Oh, well, we're back with Drist. He's in charge now. I'll just go back to my, my old submissive ways and sit back and, and they'll tell me what to blow up and I'll throw a fireball over there, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of her like looking surprised at someone and then shrugging and being like, well, I trust you. You know, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think a little more conflict amongst the companions and maybe her struggling to take that new mantle of leader would have been very interesting, I think. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like, uh, you know, I, obviously we're getting a lot into what we don't like. And there is a lot that I do like about mm-hmm. this, too. But um, and, and I think the last time you had Salvatore on the podcast, this was talked about. Uh, but the the. All of a sudden now, uh, you know, Caddy Bree, because she has spoken to Maliki, knows that all orcs and goblin kin are evil and there's nothing that can be done about it. And it's just in their nature. uh, And unlike Drow, who it's part of their societal structure, but not in their nature, uh, there's nothing that can be done. So you can never have like a drizzed version of an orc who goes good. Um, which I, uh, I just thought the way that the thousand orcs, that whole trilogy ended was with them realizing like, Hey, maybe orcs can be civilized and this can be really cool. Uh, and there's, there's obviously, there's a good conflict going on there between Drizzt and, and Caddy Bree that Drizzt in his heart still kind of feels like, Hey, maybe goblins and orcs can be good. Uh, but nothing in this book goes to show that, like, yeah, maybe maybe they are decent people. Um, well, and, 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 and I'd like to see that conflict. And they sort of they sort of reference ex- some experiences that Drist has had that throws a lot of that into question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's interesting to me because Salvatore has been talking about that specific conflict being a thing uh, throughout my discussions with him in the Companions Codex. This, this right. whole conversation of are these races uh, inherently evil or is there uh, opportunities for redemption? And that's sort of the conflict between Catabri and Drist at the, for, uh, throughout these books. Uh, but I also I like I'm not sure that through these these books and through these discussions, uh, I'm not sure that we've gone any gotten anywhere. No, uh, like I feel like we started off with a well, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree, and we're still sort of at a point where it's like, ah, eh, we'll still have to, we'll just have to agree to disagree, and and I don't know if I'm Drist, that's not satisfactory because people's lives are literally hanging in the balance, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it feels a little like right, Cat and Bree, uh, you know, by by any other name, if she weren't in love with Drizzt, he would look upon her as like a bigot. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels weird for them to not butt heads about this more that he's able to shrug it off well, as, uh, and especially, for no reason. And especially as he points out, mm-hmm. he is the the epitome of all this, right? <laughs> he is a good yeah. drow, which is not supposed to be a thing. Like, they are the evilest, most vile race on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he's the good guy that she's in love with. So shouldn't he be the exception that proves to her <laughs> that, you know, see, some people can be redeemed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that should be, it's interesting, right, that, uh Maliki, who has been such a uh you know the patron god of Drizzt, would sort of reveal this thing uh to Caddy Bree and then not to to Drizzt. Um and and so to me it does feel a little I'm interested to see where he takes the conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh but I hope it's not a uh a moment of Drizzt just being like, you know what, you were right, and that that's the end of it at some point. I hope that there is a point where it, it comes to more of a head and mm. there's some interesting conflict between these characters because I thought like, oh, you know what? It's going to be difficult for Drizzt and, and Caddy Bree to get back in the swing of things. She's been gone for over a hundred years, you know, um, and, and that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, so I'm waiting for some sort of conflict between them. And this seems like, the you know, if you have big ideal idealistic differences with a person that you are in love with that should be a big conflict that shouldn't be a thing that just keeps getting pushed to the side over. right like they're gonna have to deal with that eventually yeah. uh, and and i think that's where he's go. i feel like he has spent the last several books like laying foundations for where he wants to go Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that's uh, a storyline that he's been building for a long time. Honestly, maybe a little longer than necessary. <laughs> um, I feel like um, the the Afro Friend Fair stuff in the last two books, anyway, is a storyline that he's sort of been building. Yeah, that's great, and that's um, all which new is, feeling too, right? And so the Afro Friend Fair stuff feels new and interesting to me. Uh, meanwhile, though, and this is where I think I want to get into some some meat here. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, th- he's building these new stories on a foundation of rehashing old stories, mm-hmm. right? Like you you mentioned yourself when you were sort of describing. Um, the story of, of what this book is. Um, You referenced the thousand orcs. This story, this whole book to me felt a lot like R.A. Salvatore saying, you know what? I'm going to just sort of write the rest of the thousand orcs and see how, you know, thousand orcs was me messing up all the continuity and changing the world. And now I'm going to put it all back. You know, because that's what happens in a in a one hour drama, right? You, nothing ever really changes. Uh, Superman never really, you know, completely. The world is never completely destroyed, right? You, mm-hmm. you never change that the continuity of Batman. It all ends up going back to the way it was eventually. This kind of feels like him just sort of retelling the same story, but this time it ended differently, right? And, yep. and it kind of went back to the way it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it feels like based on the interviews he has had with you where he said like i really want orcs to just always be evil um you know uh 
I, I, it feels like this is him being able to undo that. And in, in some ways feels consistent with what's happening in 5th edition. You know, 5th edition, the player's handbook doesn't have a new spell in it, right? Um, there's, there's no new uh, uh, classes or races. And this, to me, it's all what's iconic. And this is maybe his way to help make the realms feel more iconic, get it back to where it was... Uh, so it does make sense to me that there's a bit of a rehash, but at the same time, I I just wish there was a different way to do it without telling the same story and changing the ending. Like, can't we have just mm. a whole different story that well, puts things back the way it was? Or, like you had suggested earlier, tell this story, that's fine, but focus less on the the large sweeping battles and things, and maybe focus a little bit more on the individual characters and updating us on their interactions with that world. Right, you know, let let me let me get my Athergate fun because I love Athergate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, oh yeah. Uh, th- I have to say, in this new sort of version of of the Drist universe, right, um, there are certain characters that I find myself significantly more interested in than others, and and I want to see more of them. Uh, and honestly, a lot of the old original companions that brought us to this game. Aren't the people I'm that interested in seeing anymore? You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, Regis I agree. is Regis is kind of interesting again um, in a way that he never really was before, so that's cool. Catabri um, was really interesting in about a book and a half, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, but now she's sort of stepping back again, um, so I think there's some potential interesting yeah. things there, right? But I want to see more Afro Friend Frere. I want to see more Athergate and, and Amber. Um, I, I kind of continue to really love uh, Artemis and Trary. I don't think I've ever read an Artemis and Trary thing I, d- I didn't enjoy. Okay. Yeah. Um, except maybe the End of the Sellswords um, series, just because that was like sudden and weird to me, the way it sort of all wrapped up. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, it felt like, oh, we're out of page count. Better. <laughs> so, yes, it's kind of. Um, you know, Jarl Axel, clearly he's building some stuff there. Um, Always know. a good, good, and he's a good plot element, too. Well, he yeah. really... You know, I actually, I love reading about the drought, uh, you know, all of their various machinations and everything. And, um, you know, I find that storyline is the hardest to predict for me okay. about how it's going to go. So that raises my next question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole war is happening and has been happening for the last two books now. Because of the drow, right? The drow right. manipulated uh, the kingdom of many arrows and, and the whole situation and made this like darkened the sky so that the drow could be out, you know, 24 hours and did all this stuff. And then this book is like, yeah, but we never really expected to win. We always knew this was going to fall apart. Um, we, ne- we all knew that they would fix the sky. Like this, this was never the, the point. Mm-hmm. So what was the point? <laughs> like it seemed to me like the drow like let's get up there and do all this stuff so that a lot of our people can die and the end yeah. is it just a calling are you trying to thin the ranks over at Minzo Brands and <laughs> yeah I and that's uh I I agree with that completely because at the end of the day you know even if the drow don't lose as many drow as the orcs lose orcs they're still losing some drow in a and, and if not, and they're if nothing else they're expending a lot of resources right 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 exactly so uh, you know i i don't know i'm hoping that obviously it looks like drow are going to continue to play a part in the ra salvatore forgotten realms verse oh yeah um 
so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Although it does seem like his next book for for the way this book ends, it does seem like we're off on another adventure where Brunor is the catalyst and he's looking for an old ancient dwarf home, you know, like looking to reclaim an ancient dwarf home. Well, yeah. like, and, it, and it looks like he's basically said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to give up my throne. I have no interest in that, whatever. Um, but I'm going to go over here and set up my new kingdom. Cause that's what Brunor does. Right. Which again, goes back to the whole, how many times can we rehash the same story? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That was the story of Brunor and the companions for so many books early on when he first took Mithril Hall. And now that he's, got Mithril Hall is like, well, let's find some other place to take over and then reestablish it. You know, how many old dwarven homelands can Bruner go back to? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it feels like. And it's so it's funny. One of the things I really liked about the Never Winter series was you really got to see Driz charting his own course. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was doing a lot of determining of where he was going to go and what he was going to do next. And he had to make hard choices. And now that Brunor's back, he's just following Brunor around again and doing whatever Brunor wants right. to do. And, like, Brunor, of all of the companions, is probably the most boring. He's like every other dwarf you meet who is not Athrogate or Amber Gristle right. all, you know? <laughs> yeah, him and, um, and Wolfgar. Like, what? yeah. How is Wolfgar any different or grown at all from who he was? Right now, he's more of a hedonist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like he's just going to enjoy life more because he he didn't. He was so you know grumpy and angry so much of his previous life, right? Yeah, but it doesn't make him. It's funny. It doesn't make him any more interesting no. to read about. No. Um, and I will say one of the things that has really changed about that whole dynamic, and this is throughout the entire series, is because Caddy Bree is has healing magic. Um, which, you know, previously in her previous incarnation, she was more of a warrior and then more of a wizard um, that now they get hurt a lot more often, like life threatening, oh, yeah. terrible injuries that well, are then just healed. <laughs> I've always sort of um, it always sort of chafes a little bit when I read a D&D based novel. And it's like this does not reflect the world of Dungeons and Dragons at all because there's no healer in the party. Right. Exactly. There's yeah, never there's that. never a healer in the party, and, and like it doesn't make any sense because there has to be a healer in the party if you're going to say this is a D and D group, right? Figure out a way, be creative, whatever. Find a way to have a healer, <laughs> but there's got to be a healer, um, you know. And and uh, Salvatore's Drist series was was almost the worst about it. Even when he did write a story about a heal, about a cleric. It was like the cleric who was no good at, at clericking, right. you know. <laughs> so, uh, so there, yes, yes. Now there's a healer, right? Um, yeah. Which is, I mean, that's great, and it does feel like D and D. And I feel like he has gotten more comfortable with magic. Uh, there's a few things that if you chart him at the beginning of the writer, he's gotten more comfortable writing. A lot of those are adult themes, um, you know, uh, romance and, and sexy themes. Uh, and and violence certainly has gotten more descriptive and upped its game. Uh, but magic, too, is another thing that it feels like if you go back and read the early stuff, he when it it's not used all that often and when it is used he gets really technical about it and talks about pulling mm. out back guano and rolling it with sulfur and and now it's just like they cast the fireball they cast the lightning bolt you know and we're moving on which is I mean great. you can't say it wasn't used right cuz cuz early villains were you know dealing with like the crystal shard right that's one oh, of the first sure. books. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so the but it was magic was definitely prominent force yeah. you know and, 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 magic. and it was never uh, 
something that our characters dealt with directly, right? Now, now with Canterbury, it is. Um, yeah. And I would argue that he's also become, I feel like, more comfortable um, just in the last five or ten years, really just in the time that I've started talking to him. Um, I feel like he's become more comfortable writing in the realms, um, which seems weird because he's like one of the preeminent realms authors. <laughs> but I've And I've said this before, and I've asked him about it a lot and, and sort of pressed him on it in the past, and I think he knows this. So if he listens to this, he, he shouldn't be surprised. Um, but I, I, felt, I feel like in the past, he made it a point to sort of hide in the realms rather than tell stories in the realms. You know, He would find a spot in the realms that nobody else was messing, messing with, and so he could go over there and do whatever he want and not really have to deal with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I feel like he has in the last few years, and maybe it's as the editorial and they've had these conferences where they get all the authors together and they, they hash out sort of the storylines and how they're going to interact and all that, right? They've been doing that more often lately. So now I'm starting to see more and more his comfort level with interaction and dealing, you know, embracing the shared world rather than hiding in his own corner of the shared world has also uh, grown. Totally. Although this totally. this story may not directly deal with that, right? But <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of that. Um, this book and the previous book deals a little bit with what's going on with Tyranny of Dragons. Yeah, which is cool. Um, that's thus the dragons are around. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and the dragons. I, that was the one thing. I think he writes dragons pretty well. I think he writes D and D dragons the way. Mm. Uh, I would play them as a DM. Um, you know, they're very arrogant, and people make a lot of assumptions about them that are totally and uh, completely incorrect, which is, it's fun to see the dragons correct people and scare them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's great to see uh, a character as powerful as Drizzt kind of wet his pants in the face <laughs> of <him. laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. For as long as, as, I mean, for as many novels there are of Drizzt or whatever, uh, he hasn't leveled very fast, right? It's not like <laughs> you know, each of these books is, is really just like one session of the campaign. <laughs> the whole book is just one session. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think I, one of the problems I kind of have with this book is uh, it feels like there's a big battle where Drizzt is on the back of a dragon and there's another person who's been hunting Drizzt who's also on the back of a dragon and you feel like this is it, this is gonna, they're gonna clash and blah blah, blah. and it kind of feels like the climax of the book. Um, and And it is, but then later on, there is another battle where they still need to take out the the leader of the orcs, and we sort right. of wrap up everything very quickly yeah. after that battle on Dragonback. Um, there's this I, whole, there's this whole subplot of the of the, the who's going to lead the orcs, right? Mm-hmm. Where the the previous leader is sort of dis- deposed for a while, and then they manage to to bring him back at the end or whatever. Which almost as you talk about this, I'm thinking, yeah, they did sort of had to deal with that, and and. Like, you could have almost cut that whole storyline out and it would oh, yeah. have not changed anything, right? So. It, yeah, it was confusing as to why that was in there. And it's funny because the last time this story was told uh, in a previous trilogy, <laughs> um, you know, Obul Many Arrows is a brilliant leader and military strategist and is scary. He's a great villain. Right. Um, really a great antagonist because he's not a villain, you know? Uh, he's... He's just there trying to carve out a place for his people. Um, but then this guy, Hartusk, who comes in is just kind of a typical, like, dumb orc chieftain. Well, I think that was kind of the point, too, right? Is that it's showing that this is really a drow war. Right. Uh, and the orcs are just being used as their fodder. 
Yeah, there was there were you mentioned the drag the the dragon back combats and that kind of stuff too, right? Uh, and there were some things about that 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 from a practical standpoint, as a D and D player, I looked at that and said, like, "What are they doing?" Like, <laughs> it makes sense for one of the dragons to say, "Hey, Drist, hop on my back, grab your bow," right? Mm-hmm. Why does the other one need to have Afro friend on his back? He's a martial artist. What's he, what's he going to do in a dragon fight? Like, what's the point? Well, it's a great place to catch missile weapons and hurl them back. <laughs> it's great. I guess that's... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That also struck me as very strange. Yeah. That, like, a guy who fights mainly with his hands and feet is on the back of a dragon. Although um, I have to say that Afro Franfair for me was sort of the the highlight of the whole book. Oh, like, he's awesome. Dealing he's with him awesome. and dealing with his new sort of status quo and Master Kane, um, sort of seeing or or reading the um, the description of how quivering palm works, mm-hmm. which is sort of an iconic monkish sort of power, right? Going back for many editions of D anD D, but this is the first time I've ever seen it in a in a story. And to sort of see how that plays out and how that works and, and the effect that that has on the story. Um, I thought that was really well handled. So, Wow. So what you're saying is uh, you like it when a character actually changes and has an arc? <laughs> it's good. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I, and it's uh, some other things that I thought were really cool is, uh, you know, I think Grumpf, who has a great arc over the course of this series, um, mm. has some really interesting character stuff happening. He does, yeah. Book. I really like Grump too. Yeah, and there's also, uh, you know, the fact that he is training to become a scion uh, is just seems unfair. Uh, you're like, how powerful can this guy be? Well, um, and, and did you... So you've read all the, the novels. Um, yes. It, it, it's a little... It's a, actually a little more subtle version of... Ooh, we got a thunderstorm in town. Oh, uh, could you hear the thunder? Yes. Okay, there you go. We're getting ominous with the story. With the story. <laughs> um, but was it? Um, um, what was the one with the Dracolich? Oh. Uh... And and Ghost Catterly makes an appearance. Yeah, it's the Ghost King. Ghost King. Yeah, yeah. So that that one, I, I always like. On one hand, I'm like, this is a story. Ghost King is a story that completely jumps the shark, right? Really, you had to take not just a dragon, but a Dracolich, and then replace its horn with an artifact. And inside that artifact is the consciousness of a mind flayer, which gives him psionics. Like, really? Are you kidding me? On the other hand, it was it like it brought me back to all of my joy from middle school of first reading <laughs> Salvatore novels too, right? Like I really enjoyed that, right? Because it wasn't um, not to. I feel like we're real down, right? But not to not to to tear on this book as much so much. But but it's not that wasn't just a, a rehash of a previous story. It was a brand new story, but mm-hmm. it sort of grabbed the the joy of of some of the previous stories. Um, yeah, this one I, I I just felt like I was reading the same story again. Exactly, uh, you know, and, and, I, and it did some interesting things, and I don't want to tear it down too much. Um, no, no, but I, and I, and it's laying some groundwork to go some really interesting places, and I'm definitely going to keep going. Um, but Agreed. but it it definitely felt like I was reading um, Thousand Orcs too. Yes, yeah, and that's you know what it's funny. Like I agree with you completely. The Ghost King is a great book. It's one of those big R.A. Salvatore verse tie-ins. You've got the people from the Cleric Quintet meeting Drizzt and all of his friends. Like, that's a huge 
uh, <laughs> tie-in to happen, but at the same time, we're not rehashing a story. So you've got a lot of great feelings. You're like, oh, this character's back, and look, we've got, you know, uh, Catterly being awesome and, and doing his thing, and his monk wife Danica is being a crazy ninja. And, like, I liked those feelings, and I really liked that about the Companions. I really liked that about the first book in this series, um, you know, but I, I do think this is so much like something we've already read that it does become difficult when the plot is the same. Like, I'm I'm fine with getting that feeling again, but I don't want to read the same Well, and you know what it story. is? Like, you, you mentioned the first book of the series, uh, which was actually called The Companions. Uh, mm-hmm. And as I think back to the companions, I remember my feelings on it was, well, this is interesting. I wonder where this is going, right? Like it was a lot of laying groundwork, which mm-hmm. made sense because it was sort of a, a restart of the stories, right? Uh, of, yeah. of Drist and where everything were going and, and to tie into the new edition and all that kind of stuff, right? So so it made sense that this is going to be sort of your groundwork laying story. Um but I feel like now we're three books into it, and I still kind of feel like we're laying groundwork. <laughs> okay, we're, we're still establishing the new status quo, but it's time to do something. So I'm really looking forward to the next book, uh, which is Archmage, um, and, and um, seeing where that goes. Especially, I mean, the title of it is Archmage. Is, mm-hmm. Who is the Archmage is going to deal with? <laughs> is it going to be uh, Gromf-focused? That'd be interesting. Yeah, we just talked yeah. about how he was uh, he was interesting, right? Oh yeah, well, and he's the he's also the antagonist. It looks like in the Out of the Abyss adventure that Green Ronin mm. is writing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I mean, I would love to see Gromp really develop. There's some other things that they hint at that I would love to see. Uh, like there's a uh, there's a moment where they hint that Drizzt and Jarlaxle might go off and have some adventures together. Mm. I mean, I, I would be down for that. I would definitely be down for, for reading that. Uh, especially as opposed to, let's go get Gauntelgrim back. Uh, you know, for, for Bruinor's new kingdom and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, which I feel like runs the danger of not just being a rehash of when they went and got Mithril Hall back, but also of... Of Gauntelgrim? Uh, yeah, of the Gauntelgrim story. <laughs> of, 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 like, of the oh, two, no, no, of the two times now that they've assaulted Gauntelgrim? Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I feel like I could map out Gauntelgrim. Yeah. I've read about it so much. Um, so, you know, that's I would love to see stuff like that. It, did you feel... Um, so uh, on the line of Salvatore getting more comfortable with adult themes, uh, do you feel like he's gotten the drow? I mean, have truly become evil. There's uh, there's a scene where one male drow basically forces another uh, female character into like a. Uh, 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 I, it's sexual assault, basically. Yeah. You know, um, that that she's forced into that, and then there's another scene where a psionicist, when he's tapping into the memories of someone, I think this is actually in the previous book, uh, but uh, Kimuriel, he's tapping into Dahlia's memories, yeah, uh, and she has a a memory about Drizzt, uh, a night they spent together, and she ends up unwittingly betting Kimuriel, like. 
Um, it does seem like there are some things that, uh, you know, I know Tracy is not here, but I feel like these were kind of the things that, uh-huh. that set off my alarm bells in that area. Right. And I feel like would set off well, her alarm bells too. And, and it's those alarm bells that is the, uh, honestly probably the reason that Tracy's not here, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think Tracy's even particularly interested in reading more Salvatore at this point. Um, yes. And it's, I think it's because of some of those alarm bells. I mean, even uh, – and, and and even – not only are those things going on, and it's it's one thing to sort of say, okay, but – that's evil drow society, right? Right. Um, but it's also supposed to be matriarchal. <laughs> so <Right>. um, <laughs> that's not necessarily the way it's usually gone in the past. Um, we also have the the uh, role of Catabri going from a leader to being more submissive and just sort of being a, a, a weapon to be pointed at the enemy. Yep. Um, you know, uh, in, in in companions, Tracy had an issue with. Um, there were some consent issues where where Regis sure. just sort of you know <laughs> went out there and 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 uh, pursued the this lo- this love interest um, without any consent. Uh, and so so yeah, there's there's sort of some things here. Um, and yeah. and all we can do, I guess, is is hope for growth. <laughs> so room for improvement. <laughs> So. Yeah, I mean, just say uh, you know if you're if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, should be aware that it's in there. I can certainly see story reasons for wanting to put those things in, yeah. uh, but I think there's probably ways that they could be handled better. It's not at a at Game of Thrones level gratuitous no, no, no. yet, <laughs> and, and it's <laughs> not it's not um, it doesn't play prominently no in the no. story at all. It's not like this is a a thing that happens regularly or they go into a lot of detail on um but it happens yeah yeah well, uh, i mean it's, it's funny it's, i, I mean, would I, almost appreciate it more if it was a thing that was more no, re- more yeah if it was actually important to the story like there was a reason it was happening yes yeah <laughs> yeah no I, I know i started reading salvatore novels when i was in sixth or seventh grade Um, and I don't know that I could hand this to my seventh grade students, um, these days, uh, at least new stuff, right? I can hand them the old original series. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. You know, especially just because there are some themes that you would want to be able to, uh, explore maturely. Right. As it were. Yep. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny overall, I do think that it lays some really great groundwork for where are we going next, and I want to find out what's happening with Afrofrenfear and with Grumpf, and you know I want to find out with sort of the you know it's the biggest look that we're kind of getting at what's happening with all of the gods and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, at least with Lolf uh, and Maliki, and you know there's even mention like you said of the Tyranny of Dragons stuff with with Tiamat, and, and we didn't even mention the fact that that um Drist at the end, like literally channeled the power of a god. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like glowing lights coming out of him and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and and yeah. So I feel like there's good stuff to be had there, and there's there's interesting things. I just hope that he pulls at some of those really interesting threads and doesn't let it be a. Well, Drist is always kind of uncomfortable that Caddy Bree thinks all goblin kin are evil, but what can you do? Right. You know. You hope yeah, it yeah, no. There. I I think he has spent three books um, laying a foundation, and I'm ready for some payoff. Yeah, yeah, and he, you know, I will say this about him: 
he does always seem to get to a point where he pays it off, right? Like, uh, there's not too much that he leaves hanging there. Uh, he creates a bunch more threads, uh, but he also usually ends up tying some up. So that's yeah. Cool. Well, shoot, um, the book that came right before Companions, and the name of it eludes me right now. Um, I think I at the time that I reviewed it, I, I just I described it as being sort of. Uh, I feel like this is an epilogue to the previous twenty five minutes. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, it was them sort of wrapping up that 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 story of Drist as they get got ready to launch the new one. But <laughs> true, true. Yeah. Well, so I mean, all in all, I think if you like R. A. Salvatore and if you like the Drizz books, this one is definitely worth a a read and checking out. At least read the last few chapters. Um, uh, because it does lay some set up some great things to come, uh, and I'm excited to see what those things are. Very good. Uh, now it's time to head on over and talk to the author, R.A. Salvatore. Take it away, Jeff. Thanks, James. We are here now with New York Times bestselling author and author of one of the most popular characters in the most popular setting for the most popular role-playing game, R.A. Salvatore. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thanks. I feel popular. <laughs> <laughs> my my records show that it's been uh, about a year since we talked to you last. Ah, uh, yeah, that'd be about right. We, we missed you. It's been a year. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, barring Gen Con when we saw you last year, right? So we yeah. we and are. That was after the interview, so it hasn't been a year. Yeah. Eleven months. So we are here to talk to you about. Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, which I know uh, we're one book behind, right? You're in the middle of, of a publicity blitz for your next book, uh, Archmage, right? Yeah, we're trying to decide. Is it Archmage or Archmage? I say Archmage. So I, I'm going to say Archmage. Yeah, I like it better. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and um, you know, the whirlwind is winding up, absolutely. So we're going to see if we can uh, get you to remember what you were writing, I don't know, what, a year, year and a half ago? No, not that long ago. Oh, okay. I'm on really tight deadlines lately. <laughs> <laughs> I see. The problem uh, I have is not remembering what I write. It's remembering what book it's in. Sure. So I'll start talking about Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf and drop things from, you know, Karen's Claw or something and say, wait a minute, that's the wrong book. <laughs> that's the wrong book, yeah. <laughs> or I'll start talking about Archmage and I'll be talking about things that are in Maestro, which is the book I'm working on now. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can't spoil books that haven't even been written yet. Come on. Oh, sure I can. <laughs> Well, to get us started, uh, Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, as concrete or esoteric as you want to be, what is it about? War. <laughs> what, is it, what is um, it good for? It, it's, <laughs> it's not quite the completion of Bruner's arc, but it's, it's the frustration at the ultimate failure of a better vision that just wasn't ready to happen yet. And that vision being the the peace with the orcs? Yes. Okay. You know, for a hundred years, Bruner kept thinking he he was afraid he was wrong. But deep in his dwarven heart, he was hoping he was right. And so were some of the orcs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a lamentation of the reality that we see around us all the time. When we just keep falling back into stupid old patterns, and that's what happened. Um, it's also a, a book I think that this whole series really gets the companions back on the road together in a way I wanted to, but it, it goes beyond that because of 
you know, the, the lives that they lived, they each lived individually before they all came back together again um, in the second life for four of them. And the attachments that they found and the love that one found and the kind of reversed new philosophy on life that another one found. So I was able to explore a lot of those things more in depth and really get into the characters to the point where I'd like to do spin-off books on, you know, for two here and one there. And it just, um, you know, like this whole thing, you know, this, I, I think if I add them all together right now, we're up to like 36 Realms books that I've written. And this whole thing has been one long series. It's one long journey just following these characters and taking the next next logical step with each of them, trying to get in their eyes and seeing what they would do next. We've talked in the past about you possibly wanting to do spin-off books of this character and that character, uh, but you've only ever really done, what, Artemis and Jarlaxle? Well, we did the trilogy about Maimon and Joan, the... Um, you know, the, the the books that I wrote with my son mm -hmm. um, in the Stone of Tomorrow trilogy. I did the Catherly series, and he, you know, he makes many appearances in the Dritz books, but right. the Cleric Quintet. And then the Cell Swords trilogy, with broke off, which broke off of um, Servant of the Shard, um, where that was a Dritz book, but it became part of the Cell Swords trilogy with Jarl Axel and Adamus, yeah. Okay. So, um, so what are the chances we're going to see those spinoff books happen? I, you know, I don't even know right now. <laughs> all I'm concentrating on right now are the next two books I need to write to tie up Homecoming. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what Wizards' plans are. You know, you'd have to talk to them. I, I, I've got a book that I'm working on now. When I get in this mode, that's where I'm at. That's, yep. You know, you mentioned uh, Catterley, and he is one of my favorite characters that you've written, and he's mentioned here and there in this book and, and in sort of this series that just came out, you know, the, the Companions Codex. Uh, what are the odds that we might find out what he's doing uh, in this new vision of the realms? 28 to 72. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so there's <laughs> a chance. In other words, I have no idea. Well, we kind of found out, what was that, uh, was it Ghost King? We Ghost King. Was... Yeah, we saw what happened to him there. Yeah, but the... The truth of it is that I don't know what's on the next chapter or sometimes even the next page of what I'm writing. So to to say, oh, yeah, we may see this guy again or we probably won't see this guy again is, you know, I'm 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 rolling dice and giving you the answer that the dice come <laughs> up with because I really don't know. I was actually surprised in Companions Codex to see a, a, a certain character that I didn't plan on having in a certain city in the bloodstone lands but he just kind of showed up and i was i was as tickled as i'm sure a lot of the readers were when they saw him so you know that's how it works for me so you mentioned that this is sort of the culmination of a long arc with uh bruner uh and sort of um sort of seeing the conclusion of things that started with thousand orcs in a lot of ways, this book's re this book reads like a a sort of an, an almost an alternate history version of Thousand Orcs. Um, it was is that sort of intentional? Is it supposed to be sort of a mirror, just sort of with a different ending? And or or how does that play out? No, like I said, it's the it's the failure. I mean, um, you know, Thousand Orcs was the peace treaty, 
and this is the book when the peace treaty doesn't hold. And, you know, I've, I've gone back to this so many times over the years, whether it's through the graphic novel Cutter mm-hmm. that, we did, that I did with my son or just hinting at it from afar when, when Bruner and Dritz first go on the road to try to find Gontelgrim. Um, it's, it has always been a tentative piece. You're, you're talking about um, two races that really don't like each other. That there's people trying on both sides, trying to forge some measure of trust, or running into walls left and right. So it's, I, I don't think it's an alternate ending for that one because the what happened in that one when they got the Treaty of Garam's Gorge, that was triumph. That was that was something that everybody hoped could be. And so this book, I think, is a little, even though it's. You know, it's vengeance. It's not triumph of the Iron Dwarf. Um, they got they got to play out the other scenario, certainly, but I don't think. I think it's a bittersweet victory, because the better victory would have been if things had continued to improve, and the experiment had been successful. So, really, the lesson of this is that treaties are bad, and war is the solution to your problems. <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> not the lesson that's, that's the the sadness right? sure. <laughs> I mean, I, you know related to our own world right i mean you you try to come up with treaties between countries that distrust each other and the minute you think you get something there are forces all over the place that are going to try to defeat it mm-hmm. you so, know and so we and should that, go to war with iran um, <laughs> you know, to me, war is like the ultimate right, human right, expression right, right. of failure mm-hmm you see, and yeah. and so when I look at it, it's like when every when every other avenue is exhausted, and you have to do it, even then it's failure, mm-hmm. and that takes nothing away from the people who are brave enough to do it. You know, God knows I love the 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 spirit, the willingness, the sacrifice, and nothing but respect for anyone that'll put on that uniform. Um, it, but that doesn't mean I have to like war. Sure. Well, you know, me, one of the things that drew me to fantasy is fantasy in the classic sense, where you have embodiments of evil, mm-hmm. is, is is violence without guilt, right? I mean, I'm, a, I'm that guy that was the bouncer, right? And when the <laughs> drunk came up to me and started something and I decked him, I'm the guy that felt really bad about it, you know? <laughs> I don't want to hurt anybody. I've never wanted to hurt anybody. Um, that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. So on that note, then, of the embodiment of pure evil, you know, uh, Caddy Bree sees the orcs kind of at the beginning of the Companions Codex. You you start tackling that. She sees them as pure evil. Drizzt is questioning that interpretation of all goblin kin must be evil. Uh, And I, you know, you do a pretty good job of of walking that line and, and not saying one way or the other. Um, You know, is that a thing that you think, like... When you think about the orcs, is the, are they like Germany in World War II? Like they just have to be stopped, or is it something that's more of a misunderstanding? You know. Um, well, that's why you use unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, Caddy Bree is saying she got it straight from the goddess, and so what does Dritz do? He starts wondering if that's really his goddess or not, mm-hmm. because right. that's not straight from his heart. Um. I, I I don't like your analogy only because 
in fantasy, whether it's the realms or Tolkien or whatever, I, I guess the shtick is that you're supposed to believe that the orcs are the embodiment of evil. And while I can say that Nazism was the expression of evil, that doesn't mean that every German who got, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, that's very fair. They weren't right. all evil. Um, you know, my mother-in-law grew up under Hitler. She was a she was a little kid in the bomb shelter with her little brother and sisters. And that's kind of just point. Died right? her arms in the bomb shelter. She wasn't evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she was my mother-in-law, so she had her moments. But anyway, <laughs> uh, no, I'm only kidding. So you know, the orcs. I think you, it's supposed to go to a different level. It's supposed to be that even individually, mm-hmm. they are evil. Even and, as babies and kids. And- however, I've tackled this before in the story Dark Mirror when Dritz meets a goblin who he doesn't see as evil and then finds out he's an escaped slave. Um, it, it, is, it is one of those things of fantasy that can – I don't think it's ever up to the author to tell anybody. I think it's up to it, – it's a nice question that people can ask themselves and maybe which will help them – clarify their own positions on things like Iran or Nazi Germany or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't pretend to know. Uh, it depends on the world, and I don't think it's been answered fully in the realms. I think it was answered fully in the realms once upon a time. But I, I have to say that in the fantasy genre as a whole, I think World of Warcraft has thrown a big monkey wrench in that. Mm-hmm. People like playing the Horde. Yeah. And not because they get to be evil, because I don't think they see their characters that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it, I, I think that's a question that when you're running a campaign as a DM, you're the one that decides. Are so, all goblin kin evil? Are all giant? Are all certain? Are certain races of giants evil? Are there certain dragons evil or not? That's up for the DM to decide in his or her campaign and hopefully take the players along on a journey of exploration and um, you know adventure where they find answers to that that maybe throw some monkey wrenches in their expectations. That's part of the fun of gaming, right? Totally. When you can get to that level with a game, you win. So we've seen that issue explored through uh, a disagreement between Caterbury and, and Drist now for, for some time. Um, oh yeah. Are we going and it, between Bruner and Dritz earlier? Sure. In the series mm-hmm. you alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so are are we going to see like where where that conversation goes? Because I mean, if these people are going to continue adventuring together, they're going to have to come to some sort of consensus or agreement about how to handle it, right? Um, um, I think they've they've pretty much already agreed to disagree. I don't think. <laughs> Driss is not going to go against that which is in his heart, and Caddy Bree is not going to go against that which is in her faith. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think you see this kind of struggle in every couple that's out there um, on one or another. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's as bad as James Carville and Mary Madeline. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they have a disagreement, and mm-hmm. they're, they're going to they're they're agree to disagree on that. And let's face it, when when... The chips come down. If there's a battle with orcs, they're going to be there fighting orcs. Mm-hmm. Right. But eventually that could come to a head. I mean, when they run into that goblin and Caterbury says, kill it, it's evil. And, and Driss says, there's no reason to. It's innocent. It's not doing anything. Let it live. 
they've already had that fight. Remember in, oh boy, what, see, this is where I lose books. <laughs> Way back in Sea of Swords or one of those when they were on the road and they came into the cave and there were goblins in the cave. They were trying to get out of the rain. Um, and there were, there were goblins in the cave and they came in and um, Dritz was, we can reason with them. And then they wound up in a big fight. But still, um, <laughs> so, no, I, I, I think this is an ongoing, an ongoing question. And, you know, you got to look at their backgrounds. I mean, Cadbury was raised by dwarves and now she's a chosen of Myleki. Dritz was raised in a race where every one of them was presumed evil and he's never thought of himself that way. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, that's ultimately... Driss sort of uh, skin in the game, right? Is it if absolutely we, if we if we you know if we condemn people based on their their race or whatever as a whole group, then why am I here? Exactly. Right. And now Caddy Bree tried to get through that. Caddy Bree tried to reason through that with her. You know, um, it's true of some races, but not of like the drought, mm-hmm. uh, because the whole nurture nature, right? That. For orcs, it's nature. For drow, it's nur- nurture. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that was kind of hinted at from her perspective. And Dritz wants, you know, might be more amenable to buy that because um, certainly he didn't think Zacnafane was evil. He didn't even think Virna was evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't think Jarlaxle is evil. So, you know, is it nurture, nature, that whole thing? And, and, I'll let the DMs decide. Sure, as long as my as long as my characters get growth in their stories. <laughs> it's a wonderful conversation piece in my books when I'm writing them mm-hmm. for me to have the fight in my mind, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, this is. Let me take it to it. Let me take it to it. Even you know, it's it, it's more trite, but it's not. I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. You know, you're a road rage guy. Uh, I certainly have the instincts where I could be. Especially if I get unnerved by somebody cutting me off. And so you know what I do? I pretend that in that car is one of my older sisters who's maybe you know, getting near the end of her driving days and got a little confused on the road. And there's no rage. Mm-hmm. So these are, the, these are the kind of arguments that writers have with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, let's... Could we talk a little bit about kind of your evolution as a writer? I remember when I read your earlier stuff, it seemed like, uh, you know, your your themes were very, I was in middle school at the time, they, they spoke to me, you know, that kind of thing. And now that I'm older and I'm an adult and I'm reading your stuff, it seems that your themes in the books have gotten more mature. You know, um, your your action and stuff, you're tackling issues of, of torture, you're tackling issues where... People are, you know, having um, sexual encounters kind of forced upon them and that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, in the drow world, you're seeing it both matron mothers forcing themselves upon people and the other way around kind of and everything. Yeah. Uh, can you, you talk a little bit kind of about your, your evolution as that and when you felt it was okay to sort of handle those kinds of bigger hot button issues? Well, I think the audience has changed dramatically. When I started in the business, my audience was primarily made up of teenage boys Mm -hmm. um that was the fantasy audience in the in the late 80s not exclusively but if you went to one of my book signings and there were you know 30 people there 27 of them were teenage boys and the other three were the mothers who drove them to the signing if 
you go to one of my book signings, now you feel like you're at a Fleetwood Mac concert. You've got <laughs> you've got a grandfather with his son and granddaughter, and they're all reading the books. You know that type of thing. Um, so the you know I'm a I'm a Marshall McLuhan kid from college. I, I Marshall McLuhan was a great the great media expert, communications expert who claimed that one of the things I've taken to heart with him is the concept of numbing. And by numbing, I mean when Rhett Butler says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, and the audiences in the theaters hadn't heard that before, they storm out in mm. protest. But the second time somebody says in a movie, nobody's shocked, or very few, many fewer people are shocked. And by the tenth time it's said in the movie, nobody cares anymore. And I think that's true with language. I think that's true with themes. And what I'm getting at is, I think if you go back and you look at the, the early Dritz books, what, what you will see is that the themes are all there. I just pulled the shade a little earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I always, from the beginning, have tried to write my books on the level where you can enjoy them with a bag of popcorn, popcorn fantasy. Just have a black versus white view of the world, if you will. And I mean that metaphorically, obviously. And you can just enjoy the action, Right. So you have a hero. You can read them like a comic book. But I think even from the beginning, the letters I was getting about Adamus and Trary, about the things Dritz was facing when he tried to get into a city and wasn't allowed in because of the color of his skin. If you look at the letters that I used to get in 1989, they're not very different than the emails I'm getting today. Um, You know, they range from, you know, who would win a fight between Dritz and Luke Skywalker to I didn't have any friends in school and these companions became my friends to, you know, I'm battling cancer and these books are helping me get through the day to I'm in Iraq. We were there then too. Uh, I'm in the Middle East and I'm bored and these books get me through the day to let me forget what I had to do today and not think about what I'm going to do tomorrow to these, this, what you're talking about with this racism is what I've gone through my whole life. So I think the themes have been there, but you're right. It, it's certainly getting a little more mature in terms of when you draw the shade. You know, I don't think there's anything I've done that's ever more implied than the graduation scene in Homeland in terms of, you know, a Gronkowski party. Um, <laughs> but, and that was Homeland. That was 1989 mm-hmm. I wrote that book. It came out in 1990. So, or was it, might have even been 89. So... I think it's been there, but, you know, I, I look at the TV. I just look at where we're at. I look at where we're at, you know, what the shows people are watching. I mean, I watch Outlander. Have you watched Outlander? Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Ron Moore doing it. it. It's amazing. But we were watching it the other day, and they've got a, a, a scene in the prison that's absolutely brutal. Mm-hmm. And my wife looks at me. She goes, this is on TV. And I'm like, I know. And it's, it's just the way it is now, whether it's Sons of Anarchy or <laughs> Outlander or Game of Thrones is the big one, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's there. It's, it's where we've come. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Um, I do know that, you know, the kids today growing up have much more understanding of that stuff than the kids who were coming to my book signings in 1988. Um, whether it's because of the internet. Yeah, of course it's because of the internet. Um, and I think it can be a bad thing. I think it can be a good thing. I think it depends on the individual. So 
But I'm always trying to portray in my books is there are consequences for action. People have choices between good and bad. The people who take the good choices are ultimately rewarded. The people who take the bad choices are probably, you know, karma's going to get them. And, and that's not just because it's cliche. It's just because that's the way I live my life. And that's, that's what my, what my philosoph- philosophical outlook on life leads me to believe is the truth. Yeah, well, it's rewarding as a reader to to see people get their, you know, what they deserve, both good and bad, which is yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've read the Demon Wars books, right? But Demon Awakens, mm. um, it gets pretty brutal. And when Giuseppe gets married, that gets pretty brutal. And that was 1996. So it's always been there. It's just, I, I it's a recognition that the audience has changed. And so I, I fight really hard to still make the books acceptable. You know, I always, every book I write, especially in the Dark Elf series, I am very cognizant of the fact that a 10-year-old might be reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I want the parents to trust me, so I try to use language, uh, metaphor, allusion, rather than just you know, blatantly describing something that, will, that is inappropriate for a 10-year-old. But I want a, an older teenager or a young adult or certainly a mature adult to be able to understand exactly what's really going on in the scene. And it's a big part of human life. I mean, let's face it. It just is. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, of consequences and outcomes, um, back to sort of some, de- some specifics of the story. Uh, the drow have sort of been manipulating things for several books. Uh, which seems to have, at least in some form, come to a bit of a head with this war. Uh, it, but I'm not sure what they got out of it. Like, what did the drow gain by by all the efforts they put into darkening the sky and getting their people involved and then getting involved in this war and then pulling out at the end? Um, well, I'd be giving a lot away to explain the whole thing. <laughs> okay. But I can say that, <laughs> look at the progression I can even tell you this. In the book I'm writing now, this this young drow who really gets it, who was kind of born, it's almost a Dalai Lama type thing because of the work of an illithid. So she's born with, mm-hmm. she knows what's going, what's, everything that's happened. She she has the memories of, of, of Menzel Baranzan. Right. And she never looks at, at the things Loth's doing as wins or losses. Okay, um, you know, Loth uh, tries to corrupt Dritz and kill him with Dahlia, and Myliki beats him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have a proxy war between the goddesses using Caddy Bree and, and someone else down in Gontogrim, and Caddy Bree beats her. Um, they have, they 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 try to bring ruination on the name of Dewarden, right? They're all marching under the banner of House Dewarden, right? They're trying to just sully Dritt's name and starting a war that they know they're not going to win, but they're bringing lots of misery in the Silver Marches. But they lose. Uh, on and on and on. The word "lose" doesn't really apply. If the whole point of the deity is chaos. If you look at it 
in those terms, it would be not impossible for a priestess of Loth to look at Dritz de Warden and conclude that he was the most inadvertent, unwitting champion of Loth that whoever lived. Sure, but the implication is that the matron mother knew they were going to lose and, it, and was okay with it because there was a bigger game going on. Absolutely. Is the matron mother's goal just more chaos, or is there something deeper going on that we're going to see play out? The matron mother's goal in terms of that was to make sure, first of all, that House Zolaren and their new city couldn't break away from her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who lost the most? Of the drow, who lost the most? Mm-hmm. Matron Zerath. House Zolaren. It was to... If It was to... Find the glory of Tiago, if you will. She was trying to build up Tiago, maybe get rid of a couple of Armgos in the process because mm-hmm. of House Barris and Del Armgo. And it was also to try to help the dragons. The dragons weren't in there be, you know, by accident. They were in there because of another storyline that Wizards of the Coast was putting forth of the chromatic dragons trying to hoard as much treasure as they could Mm -hmm. to bring Tiamat back to the material plane. So if you look at what happened in that, if you remember, there's one scene where the dragons are taking the booty from Sundabar. That was Loth's attempt that if the dragons were successful... Tiamat would find would view her favorably. Hmm. Now, from the matron mother's point of view, what Quenthal was trying to do was cement her hold on Menzo Baranzan through a series of maneuvers. One was the war, because everybody had to focus on that instead of the interhouse fighting that's always going on. Hmm. Another was and then After she had that down, while that was going on, she wove in lots of treaties with House 3, 4, 5. You know what I mean? She was replacing House Zorlaren while keeping House Zorlaren dependent upon her to isolate the second house, her big rivals, and the zealot Malarney, who she can't stand. So what does she do? She puts her sister on as the ninth seat of the council chamber and dares them to say no. And then she puts a Someone else on the chamber that has no business being there slaps them in the face and dares them to say no. This was her way of using the memories that she was given, the understanding that she was giving of the true nature of Loth, to close her iron fists upon the city. And the war was part of that. It didn't matter whether they won or lost. She wanted to hurt some people, cause some grief, stir some chaos. And she, and she ends up further ahead as a result, even if, if Drow Kind, if you will, is, is hurt by it. She lost nothing. And Drow Kind wasn't hurt by it. A few Zorlarans got killed, but she needed that anyway to keep them in line. <laughs> uh, so she lost it, nothing. What did she lose? Well, she didn't lose anything, right, I suppose. Not a lot of Drow died in that war. There, there had to be some expenditure of resources to darken the sky or whatever, right? But... That was Loth. (laughs) Um, Not only that, but that also helped her. I'm going to give it away. I can't. That also also helped her. 
Okay. And, and gave her an opportunity to further cement the allies she needed to make sure no one was going to threaten her. Which we'll find out about in future books. Yes. Okay. I can accept that. Now, yeah. you, you, you alluded to um, somebody who doesn't belong in drought society being influential in drought society is one of uh, – and that seem, that's um, one of our missing characters um, in this book. But you do have a wide range of characters. Uh, pretty much everybody but like two that I could think of at least make some sort of an appearance. Uh, both in, in the, from the old life of Drist and the new life of Driss. Um, how do we? How do you make sure that all those characters manage to get a spotlight or get a chance to grow as a character when there's that many of them? I don't know that they all grow. Um, you know, I, I think that just checking in on a certain character that we see in passing in the city, um, it, it's more like an Easter egg than the growth of the character itself. In that case, hmm. um, really the the book focuses on the companions and, and even the people you see around them, the five companions and the people you see around them really mostly dwarves in this case right it's kind of circling around Bruner um, they every time I'm writing a character whether it's Athrogate or Ambergris or Brother Ephephron Fair, the unpronounceable monk. <laughs> or, I've gotten more used to pronouncing it now. But. Or Jarl Axel. Every time I'm writing these side characters, well, oftentimes, they're supposed to be minor characters. Jarl Axel's a perfect example of that. Jarl Axel was nothing more than my, my kind of onboard deus ex machina, mm -hmm. right? I put him in situations, minor ones, not the solution to the book. And he'd pull out his Batman utility belt and have something to counteract it. That was Jarl Axel. And, he, and Trary was the same way. He was just a... I, I didn't know who Entrary was when I introduced him at the end of the Crystal Shard. He was just this really bad guy. And you knew it because when Regis saw him at the end of the book, Regis, the blood drained from his face. Because this is the bad guy. Okay, so I do this with a bunch of characters. And in the dark days of the Neverwinter series, when Dritz, and I call them the dark days because that's when Dritz wound up with kind of a less seemly group, right? Mm -hmm. They weren't people of his own heart. We meet Ephron and Ambergris and Ephaphron Fear. And then Trary, we see him in a new light. And Dahlia. And when, when I do that, they don't let go, even when I want them to. They won't let go of me. And so a character like – I think the perfect example in this, in this series is Ephaphron Fear, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he got some growth. Mm -hmm. You think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean he, he went from being kind of just a kind of an interesting – alluding to kind of an interesting backstory in some of the earlier books to becoming something so amazing in this book. And that happens to me all the time. It kind of ticks me off sometimes because I'm writing something and I think I know where I'm going and all of a sudden Ambergris pops up, right? And she won't let go until I give her a scene. She, she won't leave the stage. I try to kick her off the stage, but she won't go. And this happens to me all the time. And then when I'm done, I always feel better because I feel like I made a new friend. It's, it's really weird. <laughs> Friends are weird people. Um, but 
I, I don't know how to explain it. It's not by design. I had no idea. I swear to you, I had no idea. What, when I started, when I outlined the book, when I talked to my editor about the book, when I started writing the book, I had no idea the whole Grandmaster Kane angle. Mm-hmm. None. Completely caught me by surprise. And I love it. That's what makes it fun to write for me. I write books the way other people read books. I got to keep writing to find out what happens. Mm-hmm. So, makes so, my editors crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't ever write back cover copy for one of my books until you've seen the book. Mm, sure. Because the story won't be anything like what we discussed. <laughs> um, one of the characters throughout the Companions Codex who, who saw uh, some spotlight and some growth and, and became sort of a leader of the Companions for a while was Catabri. Um, but her role in this book seemed very different. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how, how, that, how that fits in, how that evolution happens? Oh, I'm trying to remember her role in this book. I mean, she, she, she basically, through the previous books, was sort of a leader of the group. Um, and then in this book, seems to sit more in the background, um, you know, and throw spells here, oh, throw spells sure. here when needed or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that was more of a matter of that when they got into the battle, when they got into the fighting, um, you know, that was her role. It was, it was the role that, that she's the big healer. I mean, I don't think that's all she did. She did some, she did some serious butt kicking in a few places, but um, it must have been vying for screen time. I have no other answer for yeah. that. I mean, this was really Bruner's book. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it was also, you know, I had, I had Regis and, Wolfgar really in kind of a, a dilemma that had to be solved. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they had to get tons of screen time. And then, of course, Jarl Axel had to kind of bring the story to a bigger story involving the dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's another thing. When I started writing the book, I didn't know about the dragons thing. And then when I was told about the, the dragon subplot that the realms was... See, the realms now, they're, they're really trying to keep the story on pace for everybody mm-hmm. at different times of the year. And they do that because now you have licensing going on. Now you have computer game companies making realms games, right? Mm-hmm. So by having an overarching themes without telling people what to write, and I think that's the critical delineation I want to make right up front. Mm-hmm. They'll come to me and say, oh, you know what? This book's coming out. We've got this dragon's story going on, and here's what's going on. And I look at what I'm writing, and I say, oh, I can do something with that. It will add to my book. Mm -hmm. If I don't believe that, they don't make me put it in. But in this case, I was already going to use the dragons anyway. I think I'd already written the scene where, um, you know, the the frozen lake. Why is that lake frozen? It's summer. That one, Mm -hmm. which I loved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I, I think I, I kind of knew anyway. But when I started writing this, when I'm writing these books, it's, it's um, when things like that come in, I'm more than willing to see if there's a way I can bring them in that will enhance what I'm doing. I did it with Gauntelgrim when I knew what Cryptic wanted. I mean, Gauntelgrim mm-hmm. was going to be the same book before I knew about Neverwinter. Mm-hmm. But then when Cryptic said, well, you know, we really want you to blow up Neverwinter for us. It's like, cool. That's a great candle. <laughs> Hit it with a mountain. <laughs> you know? Um and, and I, that's how and that I assume Caddy Bree in this book. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I think I, as I think about it from behind, I, th- I think I just had too many other things going on for her to step in front. I don't think it was her place to step in front in this one as much. 
because I, I think she was, from her perspective, her job is to do what she can do to make sure Bruner gets what he wants here. And she's completely on his side in this whole thing. And she's a little off from Dritz at the beginning, at least, because, you know, he's got this they're not all evil attitude going on. And she just wants to fix the wrong like Bruner did. But these are dwarves. I mean, this was a dwarf book. It's called Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf. And you've got Jarl Axel here, and you've got Dritz there, and you've got Caddy Bree there. But really, it's about the three dwarven kings and their minions and, and their fight to remake the Silver Marches in a way more favorable to them. Well, if you so, want to give Caterbree some more spotlight time in the future, I, I think she's become one of the more interesting characters of the She companions. is going to dominate. Not dominate. That's a bad word. <laughs> well, it's a bad word because there are other people that have to get screen time. But I can tell you that um, Archmage and Maestro... Um, I'll be happy. Yeah, if you like Caddy Bree, you are going to be really surprised at some of the stuff that happens. Right. I put a post on Facebook a couple of weeks ago where I said, so you ever have one of those scenes where you, you put two characters in a situation and it goes completely differently than you expected and you feel like you got kicked in the gut and can't decide whether you need to take some Valium or uh, a, a vodka martini? <laughs> um, and you know, Caddy Bree and Gromp really just surprised me, hmm. and and that's you know that's all I'm going to tell you. But um, to such a yeah. tease, yeah, I Caddy. I, well, I mean, you, you, you want me? You want wizards to come up head if black helicopters? <laughs> <laughs> um, Caddy Bree. Is, There's only ten people that work on D and D now. It's fine. <laughs> Caddy Bree is is stepping up in Archmage in a way that really surprised me. Okay. Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf was Bruner's book. Archmage, Caddy Bree among the companions is, other than Dritz, who's always focal, um, but Caddy Bree, I would say, in the next two books, is probably the most important and most growth character in Archmage, Archmage and uh, Maestro. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Now, you've... You're, you're ta- we're talking a little bit about what's coming up next, and you also, as I understand, helped guide the next storyline in the realms, Rage of Demons, right? I was part of the summit team, sure. Right. So, so I assume that there's going to be some some interaction between that storyline and what you're what you're writing or what's coming out uh, in the near future as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing the bookend books for the Rage of Demons. Because it, it starts in August, but the first book in it is mine, Ar- Archmage. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Rage of Demons kind of storyline ends with Maestro. Okay. And are there other, well, now no, it, are there I, other novels? A, let me, let me change that. Okay. The Rage of Demons, the timeline ends with Maestro. There are a lot of other things going on that I think Aaron and Troy are really building upon. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Neverwinter is building upon it, too. The guy's a cryptic. And... Um, I'll be surprised if Legends of the Sword Coast doesn't have some things going on as well. I mean, it's it's this is what happens now. We have everybody's on the same page. We 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 know generally what we need to know about what other people are doing, and sometimes specifically what other people are doing. So um, there's some things I can't say because sure. they haven't been announced yet. But um, the yeah, there's a lot going on, and my next two books, the first two books of Homecoming, 
to some extent the third, but really the first two books of Homecoming um, have a lot to do with it. Okay. And and you said that uh, both Aaron and Troy have books that will be uh, in this series. So are, uh, I believe I, that next that that the end of the year sees Ar- Archmage and then a book by Aaron and then a book by Troy or vice versa. I think it's Troy then Aaron. Okay, I hadn't realized that Troy was writing another realms book after the Sundering, so that's that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, it's always good to know that Troy's. Is is he is he continuing? That's my understanding anyway. I haven't talked to them in a while. So <laughs> is he continuing with his characters from the Sundering? Do you know? I believe that yes, I believe okay. that um, the whole point of doing the Sundering was that going forward, each author would have their kind of protagonists to drag along with them. Okay, very cool. Has yeah. Uh, has it been more fun for you to write combat since bringing uh, Caddy Bree back as a healer into the Companions? Because I know sort of Companions 1.0, if you will, they didn't have a, a big healing presence in the party. And now it seems like in all of their combats throughout the Companions Codex, they get beat up a lot more. Yes, uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, I'm of two minds about that. Um, you know, if it, it, in Demon Wars when I kind of had my own free reign to do whatever I wanted. Um, it's, it's really a low magic world, except for the gemstones, right? If, if you can get the gemstones, you can do some magic. Um, so I, I'm of two minds with that, that, you know, now I'm doing more, I'm doing more magic user and cleric type things in the books. Um, I remember when I first brought Efron in, as a necromancer, I actually did a um, a couple of fight scenes that were um, correct by fourth edition rules. Right. I did one in particular where I actually had the cards out and I said, "Here's what he would do." Um, you know, if, if everyone if everyone has this level of power, these are the types of spells he would want. Here's when he would use them. I almost killed myself trying to do that because <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. Uh, I generally stay with lower magic. Um, you know, I'm more of a uh, a low magic, believe it or not, player and DM and writer. Because I'm I'm more concerned with what's going on in someone's head than the other things. But that doesn't mean I don't like to make an Aegis Fang. Sure. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. I... I in the other books, you know, they go through these brutal scenes, these brutal battles, and they'd almost be taken for granted that, well, they're heroes, so of course they healed. You know, they had they had their night's rest, they got their hit points back, they're fine. Um, because that was that was the way I was kind of skirting the rule changes and the things that were being done with other characters uh, and, and other novels and other series. You know, Ed was really doing all the magic and everything with Elminster. Um, now, yeah, I've, I've kind of taken the shackles off that. I've embraced, I've embraced the magic. I've embraced the weave. And, <laughs> Good um, for you. Uh, yeah, no, it is, it is kind of fun. It, it, but you got to be careful because you don't want that deus ex machina, right? You don't want... It's a, it's a, it's a, well, a line to walk, but at the same time, anytime I read a D&D novel that doesn't include a healer in it, it's like, well, then it's not really D&D, because every D&D party has to have a healer, right? <laughs> hey, I wrote the cleric quintet. Leave you me did. Yeah, absolutely, you did. <laughs> you had a whole party of clerics. Well, but you don't want to get to the situation where 
Bruner and Caddy B burst into a room and they see Dritzka decapitated on the floor and they go, oh my God, Caddy B, did you memorize Resurrection today? Or yeah, to right. <laughs> In the same way you don't want to see the dice roll in, in when you're reading a combat, right? Right, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which is why I, you know, when I wrote the Cleric Quintet, if you remember with, Cat, with Catherly in Resurrection, there was kind of a, I put limitations on it that weren't really in the rules. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's funny because, um, Nancy, I can't give it away. I just did a scene, <laughs> not with Resurrection, but with, um, you know, it's really funny. And Trary killed this person because he's got history with this family. And poor <laughs> so-and-so, he killed her mother and he killed her daughter. And ha, ha, ha. Well, the Loth is going to grant her Resurrection. He goes, well, she could try, but he killed her with his dagger. <laughs> ain't nothing there. Right. <laughs> So I think you can play with it, you know. You can you can play around with that, but you you got to be careful because when the magic becomes the instrument through which anything you want to happen can happen, there's no tension. Yep. Very good. Uh, I, that exhausts my questions, James. Did you have any more? We've we've like doubled the length of this episode by doing an interview this long. <laughs> so I'm uh, sorry I, to I take have... up this much of your time, Bob. <laughs> no, I'm having fun. I have one final question. It's not Forgotten Realms related, though. Um, I just want to know, if Chewbacca dies in Episode 7, are you going to feel vindicated? No, I'm <laughs> glad he's back. <laughs> you know, people can yell at me all they want about, you killed Chewie. At least I didn't make him a Disney princess. <laughs> no, I'm well, glad he's back. I, I That has been something that I think, you know, looking back over 28 years of my career, 28 years I've been doing this. My biggest regret as a writer was doing that because my instincts kept telling me we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this. Not him, not not this series. And you know, I've I've come to terms with that in my own books because like in Demon Wars or the Highwayman series, don't get attached to anyone because it's brutal and people are going to die and they're not coming back. In the Dritz books, I have a little different outlook on it because these are your friends. And, you know, I can only take so much away the red fern dies, you know. <laughs> and if people are walking the road with – I want the Dritz books to be hopeful and happy, ultimately happy. After much gnashing of teeth, happy. Um, so that doesn't mean someone can't die or won't die. Shoot, Wolfgar died twice. <laughs> yeah, first time he wasn't actually dead uh-huh. by the same token I, I look at it as if I'm doing it just to shock you and make you think that nobody's safe I, I gotta be careful about that because I'm punching your dog in the face essentially mm-hmm. and, and I don't want to do that to people if the story tells me somebody's going they're going that includes Dritz um, and I made it quite clear with the companions that that was a one-off and it was because of extraneous circumstances and it was because of things that were beyond my control from the very beginning that, you know, fourth edition happened and I and I was pushed into places I didn't want to be. And so I went along with it because, you know, I, I'm a contracted writer in somebody else's world. Mm-hmm. But when the opportunity arose to kind of put the realms where they were. I said, okay. And so I was willing to do some of the things in the companions 
that I normally wouldn't want to do in a book, but that was a one-off. It, you know, it ain't going to happen again. Mm. If somebody goes down in one of these books, they're staying down. And that's the way it's got to be. I'm going to hold you to that. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll hold me to that. All right. That's the do way you, it's got to be. Do you think Wizards of the Coast is going to come for your head if that character is Drizzt who goes down? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you keep pumping up after friend fair, so you got a backup. Um, well, you know, I, look, here's the, here's the thing, though. I, I really believe, at, you know, we're at the point now Mm-hmm. With me and and wizards, where they've come now to let me, they trust my instincts, and if if I can make the case for something, and I say this is the way I want it, mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna say okay. Um, I don't think we're gonna argue about that. I mean, we're even at the point now where I'm I'm winning on titles. When I say this is the name of the book, oh, we don't like that name. You know, the marketing people, I don't care. This is the name of the book. <laughs> um, that's a new thing. They've, they've come to trust me. Um, I, I think I've earned it. Uh, they know how I care about, their, about what they're doing, and I, I tremendously, they know that I, I love them like family. And that, but they've, they've come to trust my instincts a lot more. So if I, if I said, look, this is the story, this is how it ends, this is, it's time for this part of it to end, and we'll go on in this way, and that means Dritz and Caddy Bree are getting eaten by a, a, you know, a white worm or something, then that's what happens. And I, like I said, the Companions was, it was a one-off. And I got to tell you, when I started writing that book, my fingers were trembling as I hit the keys because I knew what I was doing was something you can't do. But then as I wrote it, it felt so damn good and the themes got so much bigger than the event. You know, I mean, if you look at the role each character played in that, right? Wolfgar said, what the hell? And then he came back and he's like, okay, well, I already did everything I'm supposed to do. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And he's like a hedonist. Who's just looking for adventure? He's Rob Gronkowski. Um, <laughs> you know, Regis comes back and he's like, I'm not going to be the tag along this time. And from day mm-hmm. one, lying in his, on his board in, in the slums, he is training mm-hmm. because he's not going to be the tag along this time. He's going he's gonna to repair. And so instead of it being a book that became about undoing something in a, an obvious way, it became a book that was designed to answer the question how many times you hear someone saying oh man if i could only go back to high school knowing what i know now well i just did that with all four characters and i had more fun more fun writing that book than anything i've ever written in my life and so all the doubts washed away but i was still nervous when it came out as to how the readers would react to it and the results were so overwhelmingly positive. I, you know, it warmed my heart and it made me feel like I made the right choice. Even though logic was telling me don't do it, my instincts were telling me do it. I trusted my instincts and it worked. But it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yes, uh, you will. So any, uh, anything else that you, you think we ought to know before we let you go? 
Um, well, let me see. What else? Uh, Keep an eye out for Archmage. Yeah, R.A. Salvatore. Right? Archmage is now available also for pre-order at audible.com. Mm-hmm. Victor Bavine is reading it. He's read, Again, he's read almost he's all of them, all right? Books. He yeah. does a great job. Um, for people who want signed copies of Archmage, um, you can get them pre-ordered at rasalvastore.com, my wife's store. And if you buy the Demon Wars RPG book at the same time, you get 10 bucks off. We ran a little special for it, but you don't have to. You can just buy Archmage if you want, and you can get it signed, even personalized. So you can say, you know, to Jeff and James, thanks for embarrassing me again, R.A. Salvatore. <laughs> uh, and also rasalvatore.com, which is different. That's not my wife's store. That's, my, that's Joe, who set up that site way back in the early 90s. Um, he's running his, his e-signing like he does with every book, and you can do the same thing. So the week before the book comes out, I'm probably going to sign on the order of about 1,000 books mm-hmm. and, and get them out of here. Um, you're going to sign my Audible book? Um, that's harder, yeah. but I actually <laughs> was working on a way that you could kind of edit in a, a an audio signature. A little, a little message. That. Yeah, a little audio well, message. That's, that's cool. People. And then if my tour is now posted on my Facebook page, which is capital R period, capital A period, space, Salvatore. I just put my tour up so people can see if I'm going to be around them. And you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> at, at R underscore A underscore Salvatore. You are on all the social medias. I can't keep up with this stuff. <laughs> I think God thinks it's fun because, I mean, just – but I don't want to write a tweet. <laughs> you know, you, you just had uh, one of the Demon Wars books was on sale for members over at Audible. Uh, the Education of Brother Thaddeus. Yeah, yeah. Which was the, the novella that – well, it actually includes two other stories and other tales of Demon Wars, which was actually the novella that I wrote because we hit the reach goal on the Kickstarter that did the Demon Wars RPG. Oh, for the RPG, yeah. Right. We've also set up, I've just just set up a Facebook page for the RPG um, Demon Wars Reformation RPG on Facebook, um, where I'm putting in my game stories after I beat because we still play it. My, we play Demon mm-hmm. Wars. Um, Wizards will kill me for saying that, but it's the truth. <laughs> I, I love the system. It's got oh, defense. J- James just released uh, an interview with Ed Greenwood, and Ed w- rattled through all the games that he's currently playing, and D and D was not <laughs> on the list. <laughs> well, I I play one game a week. My my group meets, and during softball season, it's hard because right. five of us are on the team, and we have Sunday games. So, and that's when we play. But we play one game. Um, and we stay with it through campaigns. And we've been playing Demon Wars for three years now. And I, I like 5th Edition. I've looked at it. I yeah. like it quite a bit. But, you know, we've got a game everybody's enjoying. And we really haven't explored the end game yet. You haven't finished the campaign. Exactly. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we I, we do the same thing. I only play twice a month. So we stick with what we're playing until we're done with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the, the thing is, too, once you know the game well enough, when like when we go to 5th Edition, which we eventually will for at least one campaign... Maybe we'll bring some of the Demon Wars rules with us. I mean, mm-hmm. that, to me, the joy of tabletop gaming is being able to cut and paste from other systems. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that since 1980. <laughs> you know? um, so, but anyway, yeah. So, you know, there's my Twitter. There's my Facebook. People can certainly get all the information they want. The, they can get the book uh, at, at rasalvastore.com. You can pretty much get any book I've ever written signed, mm-hmm. personalized, make great birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, whatever. 
Diane's doing a, a real good job over there at the store. Um, just, just you know, like we were talking about earlier, I can do that now. I couldn't do that when we started. Mm-hmm. But good. you can do that now. There aren't, any, there aren't a lot of bookstores competing with you anymore. We're living in the future with no bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, can, I can tell you that with um, Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, it was the first time it's happened for me. I know it's happened a bunch of times before, but... The first week it came out, it did really well. The first week it came out, but it actually sold more ebooks than paper books, which shocked mm. me. Yeah, I stopped buying paper books myself uh, years ago now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can also tell you that the audiobooks are just flying. Yeah. I'm, I'm a PhD student now, so any, any reading I do with paper or even on my, on my e reader now is, is for school. So most of my reading for fun is done through Audible. Yep, I hear that a lot. People are very busy, and it's a great way to have background noise that you that gives you something. Mm-hmm. And what thrilled me with the one that was just up, the Education of Brother Thaddeus and Other Tales of Demon Wars, or whatever we called it, um, was that that story was read, read by Will Re- Will Wheaton, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he read one of the short stories, and Felicia Day read the other one. And they're two of my favorite people in the world. So the fact that they come back and they do that. For me, just did Will to... read the short story for the the sh- that came out last year, right before Gen Con? There was Will a collection. Read, um, which one did Will read? Will read the one that was the, the in the collection. Will read one of them. He read yeah. the one about the um, oh, what's the name of it? About the um, Draco Lich. Oh, okay. Um, it was amazing. He did such a good job. And Felicia read Bones and Stones, which mm-hmm. is a riot by the way um she's so funny that was my uh, that was my gen con listening that's what i listened to on my drive up to Indiana. yeah you know we had david duchovny and ice tea and sean uh-huh. asked i mean what a what a weird al <laughs> what a group huh? um yeah that was audible shocked me when i found out about i found out about that because of ice t's blog right he was complaining about doing a D book when he was like how do you story. pronounce this stuff <laughs> but um it was very cool. It was very cool. Audible's uh, the people up at Audible. They have a lot of fun with what they're doing. I can tell you that firsthand knowledge. They have a lot of fun um, promoting and and kind of playing around with the actors and being able to get the right people to do the right books. It's 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 fun to watch. And they got me Will and Felicia for the Demon War stuff, and that made me very. Go. Very good. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us. We're going to try to not wait a year this time. Well, I got another book coming out in the fall, in the spring. Right. So. Uh, well, you've got one coming out here. What did it just come out? It's just out for pre-order now, uh, and so we'll probably look at that in a, in a month or two as schedules allow, and and hopefully get get talk to you then. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. All right. You know how to get me. <laughs> I do. Thanks. Basically, <laughs> just ask, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's worked. It's worked every time so far. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, great talking to you guys. And that's the end of this episode. Thank you, Noble Knight and R.A. Salvatore. And all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links whenever you use Amazon or D&D Classics. And if you want to get a hold of the show, you can email us over at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. And don't forget to head over to thetomeshow.com to find the show notes for this show and find other great Tome Show shows like James's Roundtable and Gamer to Gamer podcast. Yes, and you could also, if you enjoyed this podcast, check out the Tome Book Club, 
where Ooh. every month Jeff, Tracy, and Eric talk about uh, a sweet, sweet D&D book. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So that's episode 252, where we waged war against orcs and established a new status quo, just like we did last time, as we reviewed Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm not a